Have you noticed um, life cycles? Kind of like things that used to be kind of have a way of cycling back. Like in the 60s, um, jeans used to be holy. And people would wear these raggy old jeans that had holes all over them. And then in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we cleaned them up. And when you went and bought a pair of jeans, they looked brand new and you could tell it. Now you go down and somebody will spend $250 and they'll buy a pair of jeans. And you're like, you need to throw those things away. Well, I just bought them. It's like, they got holes. I just bought them. Aren't they nice? Well, my wife, when I get jeans that look like that, she throws them away. Um, one of the one of my sons years a few years ago brought home a young lady, and um, I enjoy messing with people. And um, so she walks in. I think it was a lunch or something, and she came in with these jeans that um, you know should have been thrown away, and um, they were all raggy. And uh, I was just messing with her, and I said to her, I said, hey, um, and I don't mean to say anything about your parents, but um, if they're kind of hit hard times and they can't afford to buy you a pair of jeans, Carrie and I will be happy to buy you a pair. (laughs) And the boys are just straight up. They're going with me, just like dad's just being a jerk. So it's like, it's all right, and he does that all the time. And so she's like looking at me like, do I slap him? Do I, you know, leave? Um, She ended up marrying the guy. It was kind of (laughs) cool. <laughs> so I guess I didn't offend her too much. But it's like, man, it was like in the 60s, they were holy. I don't know why. I mean, I look forward to the day that when you buy a pair of jeans, especially when you pay 250 bucks for them, that they look new. So for those of you who have holy jeans on right now, I'd run after the service. Because <laughs> if I see you, I'm going to make fun of you. I, I just will. God bless you. I love you. But I'm still going to make fun of you. Um, and it'll all be in love. But things cycle. One of these days we're going to have bell bottoms that come back and you'll trip and you'll fall and you'll sue somebody because you have to sue yourself because you're the one who bought them. Guys, there's something to look forward to. I know you're going to go home today and you're going to look, honey, there's a reason why I didn't throw this plaid suit away. There's a reason why. Because babe, there's going to be a day that I'm going to be the most fashionable thing in the world. And your wife's been trying to like, throw this piece of junk away. No, honey, this is not just for some Christmas, you know, gag gift or something like this. I'm going to be sporting it. And, and so, because things cycle. Um, when we travel, um, we used to all go to hotels. We did. That was the only thing you could do. I mean, you just got online, you, you did a hotel. Now they have this thing called Airbnb. And it's like, it's the coolest thing in the world. You go stay in somebody's house, kick them out, and you pay them money. It's the dumbest thing in the world. I mean, it's like, I'm coming to your house, leave. And you go through their furniture, use their furniture, and go through their refrigerator, and look through their house. I know people in our church, folks on our staff, they do it all the time. It would scare me to death. But they do. They, they invite people into their house and you can, you can do it. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, Karen, I, I kind of like air, uh, bed and breakfast. And, and here's the reason why I'm kind of fairly social and I, breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. And so I like getting up in the morning and going having breakfast with 10 or 12 people that I don't know. That's fun. I, I enjoy that. I really do. Um, so bed, bed and breakfast, those are kind of my thing, but Airbnbs are kind of a, a 
thing that is cycling back. You say cycling back. Yeah, that used to be the only way you traveled. Um, when John was writing to these folks, he's writing to a group of individuals that we know things like innkeepers. We've heard of that, like, you know, because of the story of Mary. There was no room in the inn. Well, the fact is, we made an assumption about that, that you wanted to stay in an inn. You don't. No one wanted to stay in an inn because an innkeeper was kind of a shady individual and inns were kind of fleece bags. So they, they were not places you wanted to stay. You stayed in a person's home and it would not be uncommon to come to town and to go to a place, the market, and ask for an empty room. Somebody would have an empty room and it would be something that they would give to you or something that they would rent to you fairly inexpensively. What would be very common for you to do, Paul talked about it even in the scriptures, he would give a letter of commendation or a letter of recommendation. If you go through the text, you can see Paul stayed in Lydia's house, he stayed in Gaius's house, he stayed at Jason's house. There was all kinds of people. That's the way he he stayed. That's the way he traveled. He never stayed in an inn. Why? Because innkeepers were dregs. They were bad people. And so when you traveled, you stayed with a person. Now here became the question that John's going to deal with. When you're traveling or when you have these people that come into your house, and who were these people? Well, some of them were probably, as he dealt with in 1 John, some who were among us and left. Maybe they were coming back and they wanted to stay. Maybe they were individuals who picked up a different truth or belief about Christ. And they were coming to John and saying, hey, John, these folks are coming to our house and they want to stay. And you tell us to be loving. Should we let them stay? Is that the loving thing to do, to let them stay in our house? I mean, after all, they left our church. And, and the reason they left our church is because, well, you know, they didn't believe the way you believe. They didn't believe what we taught. They didn't. They don't align with that whole thing that Jesus was God in the flesh. So should we open our door to them? Now, one of the challenges in their day is is very different than our day. And that is that hospitality had a deeper implication than it does for us. Much deeper. We could drive home. You're going to drive home today. Your garage door is going to go open if you have a garage door. It's going to go down. You're going to close it. And your house is a refuge. It's a refuge from the world. And you oftentimes won't have a lot of conversation with the neighbors. Because that's the way our culture lives. It's not the way they lived. Their churches were in their homes. People would frequently live in their homes. It was not uncommon for them to have travelers that stayed in their homes. Because you didn't have hotels. And if you had an inn down at the end of the street, you didn't want to send even your enemy down there. That was a bad place. And so the home was a place that you worked out of. A home was a place that you lived out of. A home was a place that you had church in. Home was a place that you brought people into and you, if you will, sponsored them out of. And so it was a lot different and they had to have ways to make decisions. And the question was, John, should we even invite these people into our home, the ones that are coming back who had left the church? 
Over my years of ministry, this text has often been brought to me, pastor. Verse 10 says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Pastor, um, if a Mormon comes to my church and I bring them into my house and I have a discussion with them, am I disobeying this text? Pastor, if a Jehovah's Witness comes into my in my home and and i have a discussion with them they don't believe that jesus is god they believe he is a creation of god and he is a brother of lucifer do do i do i bring them into my house have i dishonored god Uh, pastor my son is um walked away from from my position he's walked away from christ he doesn't think he has and he has uh, decided to become uh to practice a gay lifestyle and he wants to come back and stay in our home uh over summer vacation for a week and bring his husband do i let him do that and do i dishonor this text because this text says do not welcome him into your home Pastor, what do I do? John writes to them. He says, grace and mercy, peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and in love. One of the things that John wants to teach us is to hold together something that we often like to separate. Now, you're not going to leave here today. I'll just set you up for something. Just here in about uh, 17 minutes, 52 seconds when I'm supposed to be done. Supposed to be. You're going to want an ironclad. I am going to know how to solve all of these problems. I I don't think you're going to know. But I think we're going to be able to hold together some tension points that we will understand. We normally like to separate. We like to separate truth and love. And here's the reason why. Because if I can hold truth without love, I can be hard and not care about it. I can just tell you, here's where I'm at. Here's the truth. Live with it. I don't don't have to be apologetic. I can just tell you, this is what I believe. This is where I land on this theological issue. This is my opinion. Whether it be a major or not, this is where I stand. And if you don't like it, you can live with it. There's the door. On the other hand, probably more common today, maybe not actually, there's plenty of people like that in the body of Christ. On the other hand, is this what we would call kind of spineless love Christian life. And that is, we, we, we want to believe that God has opinions on nothing. And, and he is willing to love everything with no judgment And his definition of unconditional love is that God loves everyone with no opinion, no judgment, no discipline. He just is like a big, big Santa Claus. He just loves people. And you should too. And the way we're going to win their hearts is, is if we never judge or take an opinion or have an opinion on anything and never take a stand on anything because that's the unloving thing to do and that's not what Christ did, by the way. So says that person. John Stott makes this statement, he, and I agree with it. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. 
And our truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. And so what John does for us in the home, using this question, John, what do I do with my home? What do I do when these people come? They want to stay with me and and they've walked away. They don't believe sometimes the things that I believe. What do I do with this situation? And he offers and he said, as you resolve or as you deal with this issue, all of these issues, I want you to hold two things together. And as much tension as it's going to create, and as much as you want to pull them apart, I want you to put them together. And here's the two principles. Number one, you must never sacrifice love for truth. You must never utilize, in other words, truth as rationale for not loving people. You must never hide behind truth and think somehow truth justifies not loving others. You have to love people. Why? Because God commands you. And now, dear lady, who's this lady? I think it's his way to speak affectionately of this church. I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we have had from the very beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the very beginning, his command is that you, what? Walk in love. God has commanded it. It's not a feeling. Because you can't command a feeling. I cannot command you to feel a certain way. Feelings are something that comes out of the emotions of your heart. What God says is that he can command you to love. Why? Because love is an action. Love is a a duty that you do. Love is a verb. Love is an act that you do. It is a sacrifice that you do towards another person. Whereby you sacrifice your resources, your time, your life to better to serve another person. To put their needs ahead of your own. And what John is telling you is there's never a truth that stops you from loving another person. Sometimes people want to use it and they want to justify it. Carrie and I have been involved just a number of churches. One we grew up in, certainly, but in pastoring. And a couple of the churches we pastored. Now, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to use an illustration that you're going to think I'm trying to set you up, and I'm not at all. But a couple of the churches we pastored, they changed their name. What's the rationale? Because Baptists, they've done a number of studies, and it's the, the denominational name that has the highest negativity rating in the United States. And so these two churches changed their name. Don't think for a minute, oh, this is the pastor's way. He's going to change the name of the church. No, I'm not. I'll let somebody else tackle that. <laughs> I was amazed when we went through that process. It was a name change. We weren't reorganizing the Trinity. We weren't changing the spelling of Jesus. We weren't altering the soteriological sequence of salvation. We were changing the name of a church. We weren't even changing the name of a child in our church. I can understand that parent getting mad. 
We were just changing the name of a church. And people forfeited 20-year relationships with each other. Called each other liberals. All kinds of insane things. I had the privilege when I was going through that time of, of interacting one, uh, with John Piper, who was at the time with Bethlehem Baptist in uh, Minneapolis. And we were talking about being accused of being a liberal for things that I thought were insane, like changing the name of a church. And he told me, he said, oh, Mark, we stopped our Sunday evening service and I was called the most liberal pastor you could ever imagine. I said, for stopping your Sunday night service? He goes, yeah, we were one of the only ones in town. But when we stopped it, I had people who left our church calling me a liberal. And I was like, wow, why do we do that? Because we fall in love with something and we justify our belief, our practice, our desires as rationale for why I don't have to love you. And John says, shame on you. I have not a new command. I have an old command. I want to reach back. And he says, I want to pull back. And this came from Jesus. And it is this. You must never sacrifice love for truth, even if the truth is merely your own personal desire. But we do it in the church all the time. And John says, we can't do that. We can't do that. Why? Because God commands you to love people. It's not an option. You don't get to wake up one day and say, you know what? I, gotta, I get to decide today whether or not I love you. I don't get that option. I don't get to wake up in the morning and decide whether or not I get to love some of you. I don't get the option to say, you know what? I like the way you encourage me. I don't like the way you encourage me. Whatever the case may be, God doesn't give me that option. He says, love them, sacrifice for them, serve them, put their needs ahead of your own. Place them at the end of your resources and give your life for them. Lay down your life for them. God says, Mark, I command you whether or not they speak well of you or not. And he gives you a rationale in this text. Here's the command. God commands you to love people and to never even allow truth He's not saying truth doesn't matter. I'll come back to that in a minute. He's not saying truth doesn't matter. But you don't get to use truth as an option as to whether or not I love people. Why? Because when we love people, we're being strengthened to withstand deceptive attacks. Let's look at verse 6 and 7 together. And this is the love. That we walk in obedience as he commands, as you have heard from the very beginning. His command is that you walk in love. Now stop for a moment. A lot of you have NIV, as do I, this morning. But the reality is, NIV puts a period here. There shouldn't be a period here. There should be a comma, and there should be a because. Some of you have the text at this point. I think the NASB has it right. And there's a because. And so let me read it as the original read. It says this, as you have heard from the very beginning, his command is that you walk in love because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Why should we love each other? 
because there's a whole lot of deceivers in this world and the only way you're going to defend against them, prepare yourself for them and take them on is if you're strengthened as a team. Now, if you've ever watched National Geographic, this all makes sense to you. If you've ever watched them, the impalas or whatever animal it is, and they watch those animals, it can be some huge cow that gets taken out. You know which one gets taken out? It's the slow one, more importantly, the isolated one. It's the one who is, for whatever reason, decided that it doesn't need the herd and runs away from the herd. And John understands that there's a lot of deceivers. We all get it more now today than we ever have. We all, I can't tell you how many times people have come and said, man, it's so much worse out there today. Well, it is. It's crazier than ever. And the only way we're going to really make it against all the deception What kind of deception that gender is in the head? That children five, six, seven, and eight years of age can transition their gender. The deception that's in the world. And the only way we make it, John says, is if we what? Love each other. Now you might think, look at this, man, I need more than that. No, you don't. No, you don't. The text is right here. Because if we stay together, now we fractionalize out and turn on each other and fight over mundane things like, you know, names and all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, no, no, the enemy will just take us out. Because what happens is this. I've watched it. You have too. I don't like that decision, Pastor. I don't like the fact that we're no longer a Baptist church. Well, we, we really are. We're just not going to, you know, use that term. Well, nope, I'm out of there. I'm not going to that church. In fact, you know what? I'm not going to any church because I don't like the way churches operate. Churches aren't, well, they're just not truthful. And you got to be truthful. Nope, I'm not going to any church. I'm staying home. So they stay home. Because they're protesting and they're godly. And they're just going to park it. And five years down the road, when they're living out their love and their rebellion and their anger, they call me. Pastor, would you come over to the house? You're still speaking to me? Pastor, would you come over to the house? Yes, of course I would. I've never stopped loving you. Of course I would. We're in trouble. What got him in trouble? Isolation. It's what gets anyone in trouble. And that's why you must never sacrifice love for truth. You may not like something that somebody does next to you. But it doesn't mean you walk away from them. You have an assignment. Love them. You don't have to feel good about it, but you have to obey Christ, love them. But he has another side of this coin, and that is you must never sacrifice truth for love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
What's John's point? It's not a loving action to embrace or affirm an untruth. Notice what he says. There are deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. It's truth. There are people who will not acknowledge the truth about Christ. They will come up with all kinds of things. Jesus Christ is, is a godly person or Jesus Christ is a wonderful teacher. Jesus Christ is this. They won't say things like Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is, and you fill in the blank. They'll, they'll come up with a broad and, and they, they will come up with all kinds of things other than the exclusive nature of salvation through the name and person of Jesus Christ. And what does John say? They do not acknowledge Jesus is coming in the flesh and they've gone out into the world. Any such person, notice number one is a deceiver and number two is the Antichrist. My friends, there comes a point where you have to take a position. You cannot remain spineless. It is not a loving thing to take God's clear word and twist it. It's not a loving thing to take something that is clearly specified in God's word and deny it. It's not loving. You're not building a bridge. You're not loving a person by affirming something that they are declaring is something that the scripture is clear. Now, we're going to debate on this one, but my theory is stay in the clear and primary areas. I'll give you one that I think is really clear. I think the scripture is dead set clear on the fact that there are two genders in the world, male and female. I don't see how you can go anywhere else. God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. I don't see anything else that God created. You go anywhere else, and I think you've altered the text of Scripture. And when you alter the text of scripture and you affirm anything else, you're not being loving, you're being criminal, and you're damning that person to the results of walking down a path that is of the Antichrist. Now, you can be brute about it, and, and you can tell people uh, that, that they are, you know, evil and demonic, or you can say kindly as we can, you are aiding and abetting the, the, this destruction of a person's soul. And I will do my best to lovingly stand in front of you and block what you're doing. I will. And I've recently told a leader in town those very words. I'm not here to tell you I hate you. I'm not here to be your enemy. I'm here to say, I believe, let me use the words, you are deceived. I don't know what the nature of your deception is. And I don't know why. But it is not a loving thing. And it's not a loving action to embrace or to affirm an untruth.
And I don't think God ever did that. And in fact, John goes on to say, you forfeit your rewards when you compromise those things. This is what he says. Any such person is a deceiver and of the Antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. I I don't think he's talking about salvation here. I think he's talking about the rewards that you have in heaven. There might come the day that you stand before Christ and you're saved. Why? Because you believe in Christ. But the Father says, all of the things that you did are wiped out. Why? Because you were spineless. You cared too much about being liked by certain individuals than lovingly owning the truth with love and taking a stand and saying, no, this is not of the truth. Christ is the only means of salvation. No, God did make you a man. No, God did make you a woman. And some of us might forfeit things when we get to heaven because we cared more about the approval of people that we love than the Father who created us. A text, to be quite honest with you, that has rebuked me more than I wish. The scripture says, the fear of man proves to be a snare. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. What would that look like? I think sometimes... I hear it a lot today. I used to take the Bible literally. I used to believe that. I I used to be restricted by that. But I've moved beyond that. I think John is actually kind of tongue-in-cheek in this moment. That would be my my interpretation of this. I think he's kind of saying, you think you can run ahead of God. You think you can expand God. Let me tell you what, you're joking. (laughs) You're, you're, You're lying to yourself. Don't think for a moment that you can go beyond God. Don't think for a moment you can expand God's thinking. Don't think for a moment you can set God aside and say, Hey God, nice try. Watch me. No. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And when you support this untruth... Be careful because you become a partner to the untruth. That brings us to the question, God, John, what do I do with these people? And he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, teaching about what? The truth of Christ. Do not take him into your home or welcome him. Does this mean that I can't have a Mormon into my home? No, I don't think that's what John's talking about. I think what John's talking about is what? Taking them into your home. That is receiving him into your home, allowing him to live there, and that becoming the platform from which that person does his life and ministry. It would be likened unto a person moving into your home, you sponsoring them, you paying for everything, knowingly that that person is out living 
propagating a truth that is contra to your very life and purpose. And John says, that's not loving. It's not loving to forsake your values and your truth to build a bridge with that person. If a person comes and spends the night, they come and they're driving through. If a Mormon comes and spends the night, if a JW comes and spends the night, if if a gay person comes and spends the night, that's not what John's talking about. He's not talking about a person who comes. He's talking about a person who comes, takes up residence, you support them, you become a part of their platform in the name of building a bridge. And John says, no, you are now a partner with that person and if you're a partner with that person then you're a partner with the untruth and John says you are no longer loving that person you must never sacrifice truth in the name of building a bridge with love we have to hold these together it's not easy We could sit here and have a little powwow up here. And I guess, I guarantee you, we could think of 10 case studies that would twist us. And that would be okay. My intention is not to resolve every issue. But my intention is to take the scripture and to give us what John has given us. And to say that when I make these decisions in my life as to what weddings I go to, who do I let stay into my home, what do I participate in ministry And all of these things I deal with all the time. You do too. I have to wrestle with two things. Truth and love. People who have wronged others and went to prison and they come out and they want to come and stay in my home. I have to deal with is is it a loving thing to welcome them back out? And I've had this. And if you will, bring them back into my home knowing that they have wounded other people. And to what degree do I have a responsibility to those that they have hurt? And as I hold these two together and keep the tension, I find oftentimes that God gives me a pathway to walk where I'm neither hard nor spineless, neither brittle nor rudderless if you're my age somewhere around it you'll probably remember the name of Jim Baker Jim Baker was one of those guys that was on TV and he was powerful hugely powerful and um, he when he went to prison to be honest with you everyone that I knew celebrated it he was one of those televangelists that we loved the day he got arrested And we were all like, yeah, it's about time. Those dirt bags got him. I lost track of him. Until he was about to get out. He was five years in prison. And uh, I was shocked, to be quite honest with you, at who was going to pick him up. It's like... Jim Baker, televangelist, in prison. Yeah! You know, I had a few that I wanted to be his cellmates. Then all of a sudden I find out that Franklin Graham is going to pick him up. And I'm like, Franklin, what are you doing? So I began to kind of snoop into this thing and read a little bit about Jim. 
Jim tried to talk Franklin out of coming to get him. He goes, Franklin, you don't need my name attached to your family. My name is, has sullied the kingdom of Christ and I don't want to ruin the Graham name. Don't come and pick me up. Franklin said, Jim, long before you made a mess of your life, my father and our family has known you and loved you. Just because you made a mess of your life doesn't mean we've stopped loving you. I'm going to come and pick you up. And if others don't like it, I'm ready for the fight. I like that about Franklin, candidly. So he did. He went and picked him up, took him to the halfway house. It was the Salvation Army. That was on a Friday. On Sunday, Jim got a call that he was going to have a driver come and pick him up because Ruth Graham had called. And I guess when Ruth Graham calls and says that she wants to take you to church, you don't say no. So she called and said, Jim, I'd like to take you to church with us. And uh, you're going to be seated in the Graham row. And it was at a Presbyterian church. And so Jim was taken in and he was set there and he wondered um, who's going to sit next to him. Who would want to sit next to prisoner 0754-075. Service was about to start. It was about a minute before the service started and in walked a lady ushered in by one of the ushers and it was Ruth. She sat right next to him. She put her arm around him and said, Jim, thanks so much for coming to church with us. He cried through most of the service. Wondered what on earth, why would Ruth, Bell, or Graham ever risk sitting next to a person who had so ruined the name of Christ like Jim Baker. After the service, she leaned over and she said, Jim, my family usually has dinner at my house after the service and we would love to have you join our family. Would you come with us? And Jim said, well, I would be honored to. And so she, he went there and as they were around the table, Ruth said, um, Franklin says you're going to need a job. Do you have any addresses of people that you know? And he pulled out an envelope. She said, what's that? And he goes, it's my wallet. And she said, that's not a wallet. It's an envelope. And he goes, in prison, this is your wallet. I don't give you a wallet. All you have is an envelope. It's the only thing I have addresses on. And she says, you don't have a wallet? And he goes, no, I don't have a wallet. This is the only thing I have. It's an envelope. It has every address I own. And so she said, well, hang on for a minute. And she walked into the bedroom and she went and got one of Billy's wallets. And she came out and she goes, Billy doesn't need this wallet. And she gave him one of Billy's wallets and it had some money and it was pretty nice. He was reflecting later and he said, why would a family of their stature risk sitting in church 48 hours after a man that the entire evangelical community celebrated when he got arrested? And why would a woman of her stature risk her name by giving her husband, who has probably one of the best reputations in the Christian community in the world, one of his wallets. And her and her son getting him a job.
Maybe it's because John understood there are deceivers out there. And their sole attempt is to destroy you. And to lure you into the strongholds of the enemy. Like when people get angry over the name change of a church or color of a seat that you sit on in a church. And they decide, I found a reason why I feel justified. I don't have to love them. Jim Baker hurt a lot of people, and he did. He was a train wreck in the body of Christ. But my friends, you have to hate people if you want Jim Baker to go to hell. And you have to hate people if you want him to stay in the hands of the enemy. And you have to hate people if you want the deceiver to win. And John doesn't hate people. And so he says, do not sacrifice truth for love, nor love for truth. You hold them in tension. It's not going to be easy. But if you do it and you do it well, you're going to snatch people out that were isolated for years and wrecked their life. And you're going to snatch them out of the hands of the enemy. You're going to snatch prisoners who made a mess of their lives and feel like no one's going to love them. And you're going to love them and you're going to touch them. And you're going to receive them into the body of Christ. You're going to come to church and you're going to find people who are on the edge, who it won't take much to spin them off of the church because they're mad. And you're going to grab them and you're going to bring them in. And you're going to strengthen them and you're going to challenge them. You're not going to let them off. You're going to challenge them to love people and to live by the truth. But when you do, you're going to bring them into the herd of the body of Christ. And what you're going to do is you're going to prevent the evil one from winning. That's why John said, never sacrifice truth for love or love for truth.